Okay, ladies and gentlemen, um, welcome to the LSE for, for this evening's event. Uh, my name is Fiona Steele, and I'm a professor of statistics and deputy head of the Department of Statistics um, here. I'm very pleased indeed to welcome Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter to the LSE today. Um, Professor Spiegelhalter is chair of the Winton Centre uh, for Risk and Evidence Communication in the Statistics Laboratory at Cambridge. He has made an enormous contribution both to statistics research and to the public understanding of risk and uncertainty. His research encompasses, encompasses the development of novel statistical methodology and their applications in public health. And he led the team that developed the groundbreaking Windbug software, which opened up Bayesian methods to researchers in statistics and beyond. His research has been highly cited and influential among researchers from a broad range of disciplines. But going beyond that, he has brought his statistical expertise into the, the public realm, from providing advice on teaching mathematics in schools and performance ind indicators in health um, to giving evidence in high-profile uh, public inquiries. Through his public understanding work, he is a regular contributor in the media on all matters related to the appropriate use of quantitative methods in dealing with risk and uncertainty. Um, he was awarded a knighthood in 2014 for his uh, services to statistics, and he has just finished uh, his term as a president of the Royal Statistical Society. His new book, The Art of Statistics, published tomorrow, introduces statistical thinking and data visualization and analysis through an array of real-world uh, questions, such as how can we determine the luckiest passenger on the Titanic? Could statistical analysis have um, helped uh, catch the serial killer Harold Shipman earlier? Perhaps we will hear the answers tonight. Right. But in doing so, he also raises awareness of fundamental issues such as data quality, selective reporting, and the importance of uh, effective communication. Right. So if you are a Twitter user, the, uh, the hashtag for today's event is LSE Stats. Um, the event is being recorded, and we hope to make it available as a podcast, uh, provided there are no uh, technical difficulties. Could I please just ask you to put your phones on silent, just so we don't uh, in disrupt the event? Um, after the lecture, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to Professor Spiegelhalter. Um, there will then be a book signing. Um, with copies of the book on sale, you would have seen the display as, as you entered the lecture theatre. Um, there will also be a reception um, to which you were all invited to. Right. Um, so, but now, will you please join me in welcoming uh, Professor Sir David Spugelhalter to, to LSE to deliver his lecture, Learning from Data, the Art of Statistics. Thank you, thank you very much, Fiona, for that intro, kind introduction, and uh, welcome to my book plug. <laughs> it's very, very nice of you to turn up to be entertained. Um, as I say, it comes out tomorrow, and um, uh, this is a new talk. I mean, I, I give the same talk over and over again, but this is new. So um, I hope it's going to go okay, and you like the material, and, uh, but you are the test audience for, for some, of this, some of this work. Um, no, it's a real, a real pleasure to be here. Is this going to work? No. Um, what do I do? Someone going to help me? Um, I thought I was just going to be able to click this, and it might just go on to the next slide. You need the full screen, I guess. Anyway, so, um, yeah, I, um, it's taken four years to write that thing. 
Um, and I, yeah, so I, I hope, I hope um, you're going to be entertained by it. Um, and, and, you know, I wanted to do it because statistics is so important in modern society. I mean, we, um, you know, we're, we're in a data-driven society. Um, there's so much interest in machine learning and AI and algorithms and so on. And yet, I'm a, I'm a statistician, and I feel that statistical insights are incredibly valuable. So it's not like, uh, you know, I think data science belongs to statistics or anything like that. It's just that statistics is a crucial part of modern thinking about data. Okay, so that's the book. Um, yeah, out tomorrow. Um, I usually, I've, I've written this sort of stuff in the past, you know, real technical stuff about Bayesian methods and, and software and things like that. But I'm not going to deal with that. The, the book's hardly got any formula in it at all. It's essentially a maths-free. But it is, in fact, the first course in stats disguised as a whole set of stories. But by the time, if you, get, if you do get through to the end, and at the end of it, I do congratulate people on reaching the end because, you know, it's quite a slog. In, I mean, I hope it's readable, but it's, um, it, there's a lot of content in there disguised by these, these stories. Um, okay, I, I just, I've done entertainment stuff in the past. I, you know, I've been lucky enough to have this job the last 10 years, which is to do with stats communication, which has enabled me to take the time to write this. So I've done the BBC programme there. Tales You Win, of which uh, the <laughs> producer director is sitting in the audience, which I'm very grateful to. Um, I've done Wipeout, jumping over the big red balls in Argentina, but you're not going to see the video of this, I'm afraid. So is, I'm afraid of it. And, um, and the other thing, my other attributes, I'm world champion of Loop, of all things, which is a, a bizarre game. It's a, it's a game of billiards played on a, an elliptical table with one pocket. It's like a, it's like a putting green. Um, but if you know that there's another dot where the other focus of the ellipse is, and if you know the mathematics of an ellipse, you know if you bash a ball over one focus, it'll bounce off the cushion and go into the hole. So you can use a lot of mathematical... Anyway, I won. It was a crummy competition anyway. And it's a crummy award. It's a bit of polystyrene painted gold. But I still, I still am apparently world champion. Okay, and that's the thing I do now. work with this gang in Cambridge, the Winton Centre for Risk and Evidence Communication. These are psychologists, ex-BBC communicators, web designers. We've got an actor joining us and so on. And this extraordinary group in the maths department in Cambridge all concerned with communication of numbers and evidence and risk to public and professionals. And we'll come on to some of that work later. So that's why I feel communication is unbelievably important. I think it should be taught as part of stats courses in the future, along with ethics. I think it's unbelievably important. And the point is that numbers, as I said, are around us all the time. And sadly, for someone who loves numbers and feels they're, they're delicate things that need nurturing, they're often abused like that. And like that, you know, I'm not biased. You know. No, no, no. I see both sides. So these, you know, these numbers are being used to persuade rather than inform us. They're used as rhetorical devices to try to change our emotions and influence our behavior and our feelings. And this goes on all the time. And so I, th I believe it's really important that we learn to try to take these apart, these numbers apart. I was, one of the challenges I do for, for you know, audiences sometimes is to say, make that look like a small number. Because it looks like a big number, it's a very influential number. So the challenge is to show the way that numbers don't speak for themselves, that they, they, the way they're communicated is vital, make that look like a small number. Now the first trick, and anything, is that you'll learn this if you, of course, if you listen to more or less, you always divide by the population of the country. So 30, 350 million, well, what's that, about, about, um, six, uh, what's that? It's about six pounds a week each in the country. Then divide it by the number of days in a week, you get 80p a day. Packet of cheese and onion crisps. 
That's all it costs to join the union, even if that number was right, which is wrong. So the fake, but they didn't put, you know, we send the EU, EU, each of you sends the EU a packet of cheese and onion crisps every day. They didn't say that because it wouldn't sound very impressive, would it? So it's the way the story is told is vital. Okay. And as I said, data does not speak for itself. And I start the book with a lovely quote from Nate Silver of 538. Um, the numbers have no way of speaking for themselves. We speak for them. We imbue them with meaning. It's, it's not an automatic process to go from data to a conclusion. You, know, you, they, you have to know about how the data were collected, what the quality is. Can, you know, um, what's the reliability of it? And I'll go on about that later. And before we apply any statistical methods and draw any conclusions. And that's why, in fact, in the book, um, you know, I concentrate so much on this business of, of the data you know, and understanding it. Is, is it what we really need? So we can talk about more about this later. Now, I'm going to be abusive about traditional teaching of statistics. Who's done a statistics course in their life? Hands, hands, keep your hands up if you enjoyed it. Oh, yes, yes, a few hands up. But many hands went down. Many hands went down. And, you know, I, 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 I'm part of it. I've, I teach, I've taught stats to maths undergraduates in Cambridge, and I teach in a certain way, in a certain order. And I'm going to do a bit of a parody of that. And I'm, I do apologize to the stats teachers in the audience. I'm not being personally abusive. I'm, I'm, I'm essentially being abusive about the entire stats profession. You know, that usually starts off with mean, median, mode. You know, simple descriptions of statistics, which is, frankly is pretty dull stuff. Oh, mean, median, mode. Here we go again. And then you go straight into probability theory. You know, that's what a standard stats book would do. You go into probability theory about drawing random observations from population distributions. If you're in a mathematics, more mathematics course, you'll start doing let x1 to xn be iid random variables from a normal distribution. Then, that's difficult and mathematical to grasp. Then you do probability theory for distributions of summary statistics. This is mathematical and incomprehensible when you go on to the sampling distribution of the sample mean, central limit theorem, all that. And you, you're straight into that before you get to, because you, if you're going to do intervals or estimates or something like that. Then you get in a whole lot of tests. Which test do you do? T-test, chi-squared, one sample, two sample, one-sided, two-sided, and all that stuff. And this is just, ends up just being a bag of tools. Of which <laughs> test do I do with this data? And that's how most people do a look at statistics. And then fine, you might, if you're really lucky, get a few statistical models. But even those will be on toy data, nice, complete, rectangular stuff that's been endlessly gone over. So that, unfortunately, I, I believe is... It's a bit of a parody. It's how stats was. That's how I learned it, and, um, and that's how I've taught it. <laughs> um, but the book, a uh, modern statistical course, and I'm very influenced by people like Chris Wilde from New Zealand, takes a very different approach. And that's the approach I've taken in this book. It took me ages to structure it. First thing is you motivate by problem solving. You start with problems. That's what they, you, you know, what's the question that we're after? And then you might look at visualization and exploring data. And you focus, go straight into, you know, how good is the data? Can, what can I learn from it? What are the biases in the data? And, and so on. So using just common sense, there's nothing mathematical there at all. Then I actually go straight into models and algorithms in technology, technological applications. So they're just trying to make predictions. You don't need any probability theory for that. You can just, you know, this is a formula that comes from the number and it makes a prediction. And you can decide what, you know, how good that is. No probability theory needed at all. Then, do uncertainty, still without any probability theory, using the bootstrap. 
I'm not going to go into the bootstrap in details. The Nature Review of this, amazingly, said there wasn't enough on the bootstrap and the central limit theorem. Now, I know no book review that's ever said there's not enough on the central limit theorem. <laughs> it's better than saying there's too much on the central limit theorem, I suppose. So you do that, and then finally, you bring probability. About two-thirds of the way through, probability comes into the course. And then you do a bit on hypothesis testing, and you do central limit theorem and stuff like that, and, and bring in Bayesian methods. Rather late, unfortunately, but it is mathematical. So that's the order of the book. That's hugely influenced by people like Chris Wilde, the st stuff they do in New Zealand, and uh, others who have recommended this sort of switching around the order in which things are done. Now, the other thing I borrow hugely from, from uh, New Zealand and Chris Wilde is this idea of the problem-solving cycle. Now, this is taught in UK schools, that there's a problem-solving cycle, a data cycle in statistics. I use the particular one they teach in New Zealand, PPDAC, it's called. And there it is. And that's a nice advert from the University of Auckland on, for kids on data detectives. We're all data detectives. That's what it is. And basically, it's, you know, it's very straightforward. It's, it says, you know, you, first of all, you start with a problem. The number one thing is a problem. What is it? And then you plan what you're going to do. What are you going to measure? What data do you need to answer this problem? Then you actually collect the data and you sort it out. And then you do the analysis. And that, you know, can be the usual sort of stuff that we, that we learn about. And usually we only focus on this. Then, and this is crucial, you do some interpretations and communication. It's an absolutely vital part. Then you start again. Because all that did was raise more problems, raise more, more questions, and you start the whole cycle again. And this bit that we normally just focus on, the tests and the, and the software and things like that, is only one part of that cycle. And in the book, this is the bit I don't concentrate on. Everything else I do. So I think this is incredibly important. And um, I, I now think about this whenever I'm looking at any problem. So, for example, just looking at the data, the question might be, what was the pattern of Harold Shipman's murders? Now, the reason I, I use this one is because... Um, I was a, an expert witness at the, Harold, the inquiry into Harold Shipman. So Harold Shipman was this GP. Um, he said, I got nothing to die. He had quite a lot to hide. He had 15 bodies, um, which they dug up, which were full of diamorphine that he injected. And um, that was in 1998 when he was arrested. And then it was concluded that he'd murdered at least 215 other people with 45 possible probable victims. Um, We've done actually something that there's a website just now available today which has got on it, the, for the first time, publicly easily available, is a database of his 215 victims well, with their age, when they were murdered, and their gender, and where they were murdered. And that's not been available before. The website has been, but we scraped the data off and it produced a spreadsheet now, which enables us to plot things like that. Now, that's the first graphic in the book, and it's quite advanced, but I don't need to explain it to people. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, um, it's just a, a scattergram of the uh, age of the victim, the year in which they were murdered, and uh, whether they're, whether they're um, men or women. The black dots are the, are the women, clear dots are the, are the men. But also I've superimposed um, a histogram on the margins of the, of, the, of the graph to show, which gives you a picture of what was the distribution of ages and what was the distribution over time. It's a very intuitive graphic. But it, and it generates so many questions. I love doing this with audiences, actually school audiences. So what, that, what do you ask about that? So I could ask questions like, um, you know, was it more men or women who were murdered? Oh, answer. Women. Okay. Did he change his pattern in terms of age as time went on about what he did? Was there an interaction there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you could, I haven't done a formal analysis of that, in fact, but it, he started um, murdering younger people. And it, he got into trouble when he forged a will, which is when he got caught. And then people ask about, you know, where well, there's a gap. 
here? What happened? So there's a question of what happened then. And people say, oh, did he go on holiday? No, he didn't go on holiday. He, um, uh, he, he was working with uh, other general practitioners at this point, and he thought he was being suspected, and so he set up, he paused, and set up a single-handed general practice. And then, by the end of it, before he, at the time he was caught, he was murdering somebody every two weeks. So 26 a year. In the final year, he murdered 26 people. Absolutely staggering. So, um, so we go down around the circle like that, and you know, we, the next question would be, you know, what was the pattern? Well, you know, continue. What was the pattern? And the problem, you know, how did he do it? What was his modus operandi? Um, and the plan there, which was what uh, which uh, Richard Baker was a GP did, is that he went went and waded through all Shipman's death certificates um, that he that he had signed, hundreds of them. It took ages to 20, 30 years of death certificates, and then he picked a sample for other local GPs and did the same. And the analysis in this case is a simple plot. This is the time of day at which, for other GPs, their patients died. And it's uniform over the 24 hours. People don't die at any particular time of the day or night. That was Shipman's pattern. Now, you don't need a subtle statistical test to say this is different. It's not what's known as an interocular test. Hits you between the eyes. That Shipman's patients die between 2 and 3 in the afternoon. Okay? Why? Why? Any, any ideas why they died? They did. Sorry? When he visited No, the, um, it was instantaneous. He would inject people with diamorphine, and they would die on the spot. Home visits. Home visits. Oh. Exactly. He was a very good GP. You try to get a GP out for a home visit now. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he'd do home visits where the, the patients were on their own at home, and their families were out. And then he'd inject them and watch them die, and then um, change the re- medical records. So that's what he did. And uh, he never explained why. He never spoke. Uh, he committed suicide in prison. So we, know, we don't know why. So, um, you know, that's, you know, we'll come back to that later. Actually, I should say the question that generally comes up at that point is why wasn't he caught earlier? Why? So we'll come back to that later, about why he, could he have been caught earlier. Okay, so here's another question that comes out. This is now to do with, that was good quality data. Um, they had the death certificates, uh, they knew about the victims, uh, they knew a lot about it. So that is good quality data. Well, you know, well, we can learn from that. And we have to be careful about it's good. Now, well, is this good quality data? So there's a big interest in, in sexual activity to understand sexually transmitted diseases and so on. And especially back in the, in the 80s with the rise of the AIDS ep- epidemic, this is the sort of question that people are still asking. How many sexual partners have people in Britain had in their lifetime? And um, we can't know this as a fact. We'd like to know. We'd like to know, but we can't put cameras in bedrooms and things like that, you know, or, or to, you know, to, we, we, we have to ask people. There's no way we can identify this automatically by data dredging. We have to ask people. And the survey NATSA, which is a survey that's been going on for years, um, uh, every 10 years, uh, expensive, very good quality survey, with a huge high reputation, asks people. Now, it does it in a very careful way with um, guaranteed anonymity and, and the, um, uh, the subject answers on a computer and the interviewer cannot see the responses and it all gets closed down and anonymized. Okay, so what do you get when you look at the data? I think this is a fascinating graph. I love this graph. You give a whole lecture course pretty well on this graph. And, um, okay, let me point out, you know, what are the sort of features? You know, this is just people between 35 and 44. Um, what are the kind of features? Oh, and I should say, I've truncated this graph at 50, because otherwise we'd be, otherwise we'd be in Houghton Street. 
Um, for this group, anyway, the, the highest was 550. So that was the claim. Um, so, well, okay, features of this graph. Yeah. Sorry? So, so, oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay, rounding. What's happening here, what it looks like, is that round about here, people are remembering, you know, names and... And then after a bit, the faces get a bit blurry. <laughs> and then after a bit, they say, Wah, 20, 30. You know, there's clearly you know, a lot of rounding going. Apart from this gentleman, he said 47. So I, <laughs> I would think he was a statistician, but I could never believe a statistician would have 47 sexual, sexual partners. Never mind. Exactly, exactly. These are opposite sex partners. Men have got more sexual lifetime sexual partners than women. This is mathematically impossible because every partnership requires two, one of each. And so the mean, not the median, but the mean number of partners for men and women should be the same. Now, there's a different age grouping here because this might be with younger people and something like that. But this is an issue that men do report having more sexual partners than women, mathematically impossible. So that's an issue. We'll come back to that in a bit in a minute. And the, uh, the other thing you might notice that um, uh, one is the most common response. I mean, that is the most common. But, but there is a, you know, a long tail going out there. So there's lots of issues there. And people, there's just paper just come out from this group on trying to explain why men are reporting more sexual partners than women. The, one of the, the, there's all sorts of reasons that, but, you know, about women maybe not wanting to acknowledge some partnerships in the past about um, actual uh, some social desirability bias and not wanting to admit to having more sexual partners, but also just how people count. That if you do carefully rake through your memory and count one, two, three, you, you'll get some, you'll get figured. But if you really are just sticking your thumb in the air and go, wow, 40 or something like that, especially if you start saying 100, 120, then that is going to bias the mean quite a lot because these extreme figures pull the average up, up considerably. So um, uh, the, the, this data might not be completely reliable. Okay, so how many people, how many sexual partners have people really had? In the, in the country. What can we conclude from that data on that sample of people about what's really going on? And if you think about it, there's a lot of stages you have to go through to get from those responses to the truth about the whole country. Because that's what we want. We don't care what these people did. We want to know what happened in the country. And um, so that's the actual data that you get. There's mean of 14 against 8, which is impossible. Um, 8 and 5, the medians are pretty different. The modes are 1. These are the ranges, etc., etc. So there's some summary statistics. But can we believe those apply to the general population? Okay. So can we generalize this? And this is what statistics is about. It's about taking the data we've got which might be on everybody, but might not be reliable, and saying, well, what can we learn from it? And we've got to be very cautious about that. So this is, I think, a nice picture um, that, again, I stole from other people in Olford, but it's a standard one where you say, our process of reasoning is that we've got some data, the actual measurements, and we use them to tell us something about the people we talk to, the, you, know, in other words, you know, the truth about those people. Then we go from there to the group of people that we could have asked, but we didn't. You know, the study population, the people who we were actively going out to contact or to find. And then we have to generalize to the whole population of people. And this is a very subtle process. And all along this process, errors can creep in. For example, the first one is how reliable are the reports? Can we believe what they say? And we realize, actually, maybe we can't believe completely what we say. Next one is, is, was this a representative sample? And um, this was a 66% response rate. Were they random? Did the people with lots of partners systematically not answer? 
And I put soup. Soup, that's to remind me to tell the soup. Do you ever know the soup story from Gallup? The analogy he made. George Gallup, who invented opinion polls, had this brilliant idea because he had to counter these people. How can you know the, the opinion that a small sample could not tell you about the population? People weren't used to this idea. And so he, say, he used this soup analogy that if you want to know whether your soup needs more salt, you don't have to drink, you don't have to eat all the soup. You stir it up and taste a little bit. And as long as it's stirred properly, you only have to taste a little bit to know what the content, what the consistency of the rest of it is like. And he said exactly the same with samples. So what I always think, use this soup analogy, is, you know, is your, is your, are you properly stirred? You know, is your group properly stirred? And there's a problem there because maybe this is a biased sample. As he looks in this survey, it isn't particularly biased. And then, of course, the people in the survey aren't necessarily the, the, who you could survey, are necessarily the people you want to see. There's no, you're not asking institutions, not asking, you know, lots of people that you're not actually engaging with. So there's all these stages you go through where problems can arise. And, um, and you know, without trying to labor the point, um, I, I do in the book talk about crime statistics, other areas where, you know, and, and why we might not believe those, and so on. And this is just a useful structure to see where the problems can come in. Okay, I, I then, of course, and this is still, again, before any maths, no technicalities, no probability, you can start talking about causation. You know, correlation is not causation. It's a standard cliche. But um, I still can't resist. I, I still love these stories. Um, this is one I've used quite a lot. Um, it's particularly dull. One day there's going to be one of the authors in the audience, but never mind. Um, it's a dull Scandinavian study. Um, Scandinavia is amazing because they can link tax records with health records, which is not the kind of thing that's you know, done, in, done here. Um, but there they can, and they can find that. Um, this, we observed consistent associations between higher social composition and higher risk of glioma. Richer men got more brain tumors. And they found it's not, not a big... A big, a big effect, but richer men have got more money. And they said it could be an artifact. Now, why could that be completely spurious? Why might rich men not actually get more brain tumors, but just appear to have more brain tumors? No, no, yeah, the natural one is that because they're living longer. And if they did a naive comparison, yes, that absolutely would be the case because rich people live longer, a bigger chance to get brain tumors. So you'd expect more rich people. No, but they adjusted for age. So this is to do with the age specific incidence of brain tumor. So they, they realize that, 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 of course, the first thing to do, you must allow for age. What's the other reason why richer people? Yeah? Yeah, yeah. rich people use health care more, we know that, get better care, more likely to be diagnosed if you've got a disease. So that, and they, the author said that, this could be an artifact. Okay, this didn't stop the press officers who thought, actually, come on, let's get some press coverage for this. Let's say that high levels of education linked to heightened brain tumor. The study wasn't about education, but never mind. It was in a table somewhere. So let's say that. And then by the time he gets to the Daily Mirror, we go, why don't a university increases the risk of a brain tumor? So let this be a warning to all of you. All this studying makes the brain heat up. And the so you get this complete drivel of an association which may not be there in the party anyway, it might be an artifact anyway, being reported as a, ca as a causal you know, relationship. You know, so it, it, absolute nonsense. And we see that all the time. You don't only have to mention you know, vaccines and autism and everything, all that sort of stuff. Okay, so um, actually scientists, though, sometimes can have an agenda. You know, sometimes the problem with the stats we hear are due to the scientists. And this is a story just from, um, when was it, last month? 
February. The, 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 the insects disappearing story, front pages of newspapers, um, apocalypse warning, life will disappear because the insects could get disappearing. But slightly more rational, the Guardian, world's insects are hurtling down the path to extinction. Um, more than 40% of insect species declining, total mass of insects falling by precipitous 2.5% a year. And you, this was a, a study, an academic study, from you know, a respectable journal, etc., etc. Uh, but you may have already heard this being taken apart on more or less. But I actually, we got to it before more or less did. But, but uh, we put, okay, so what could they have done wrong? Now, actually, to discover what they did wrong is actually quite easy. You only have to look at the methods part of the paper. Okay, let's look at the method. This was a meta-analysis. They review the scientific literature to estimate the decline. So they searched, this is a quote from the paper, using the keywords insect and survey and decline. So they searched for the papers that reported a decline. And then said, well, this is what the decline is. They didn't look at the papers that reported stability or increase or anything. There's more papers that are reporting an increase that were decline. But no, no, look at decline. So there's just total selection bias in your in getting you're getting the evidence to prove the hypothesis. It's absolutely outrageous bad science uh, for which they appear to be in completely lack of a, apology. So it's only by looking you cannot take these numbers of face values without knowing where the data came from, how was it collected, and what biases might have come in. Again, no maths, just pure sort of common sense almost on this stuff. Yeah, looking at decline. So um, in the book, I, I go from that business of correlation causation and interpretation of data and things. And then, again, because I was trying to delay the, the probability theory and the usual stuff, go straight into predictive analytics and essentially machine learning. You know, taking a set of data and then making a prediction from it, a, a technological tool to make a prediction. And uh, my example for that was, you know, who is the luckiest person on the Titanic? So there's the Titanic. Um, we'll come back to that picture in a minute. Um, okay, so and why I picked that one, it's quite interesting. I, I come from North Devon, and I've got a little flat in Ilfracombe where I'm going to spend my dotage. And um, that's Ilfracombe. Very nice. Actually, it doesn't very often look like that, but never mind. It's a <laughs> lovely place. I do recommend it for your holidays. Um, and um, in the graveyard at Ilfracombe Church, there's this gravestone, uh, but it's actually half, most of the gravestone is a memorial to Francis William Somerton, who's perished in the Titanic disaster of 1912. It's a very sad story. He left his wife Hannah, his young child, to go off to America to seek his fortune. Spent almost all his money on buying a ticket um, for eight pounds, one shilling. Set off on the Titanic in third class and didn't survive. So that, uh, my, interest, my interest was really piqued by this. It's quite extraordinary. I didn't know this was in Ilfracum. And uh, But then I realized that actually predicting who's going to survive the Titanic, people might know, they know this if they're in anything to do with the machine learning community, is a total obsession of the machine learning community. There's a, a database available, uh, which is riveting, um, of 1,300 passengers, their name, what class they're in, whether they survive, gender, age, when it's known, number of siblings they've got, um, the tickets, the numbers, how much they paid, sometimes their cabin. And you know, all this information um, of these, only uh, uh, Miss Stanley actually survived. And can we construct an algorithm to predict who survives out of the, from the Titanic? As I said, it's become a complete obsession. If you go to Kaggle, which is a website which does machine learning competitions, uh, they've had 59,000 entries <laughs> to try to predict who survives the Titanic. 
And they're all based on this idea of splitting the database. You get a training set, you get given 70% of the database, you have to direct your algorithm, and then you test it on the, 30%, on the test set. And you're not allowed to look at that while you're developing. You have to say, this is my algorithm, now I'm going to test it. And the winner, the, the competition, if anyone wants to join in, the competition's still on. But actually, I think it's been spoiled because I think people are cheating. <laughs> Some people are claiming massive accuracy, which is completely impossible. So I think people are cheating. And I don't know what they do. You can, you can download the whole database. You can find the test sets. So anyway, you can cheat. So I cheated. I downloaded the whole database. Um, and um, and if you, you can then do standard statistical stuff of plotting, you know, the percentage surviving. Um, you see the younger, these kids surviving here, uh, first class surviving, female surviving, people who paid a lot. People paying 80 quid for a ticket. Amazing. Um, you know, uh, middle-sized families surviving, etc., etc. So you've got all these factors, and then you throw them into a machine learning algorithm. And I used R. I just went through everything I could find, shoving them into everything, you know, regression and neural networks, k-nearest neighbor, support vector <laughs> machines, everything. I just shoved it all in. Um, this is actually what won for me was this incredible, simply classification tree. Really simple thing, which you can explain. It's what's known as a transparent algorithm because you can see what it is. First of all. Are you called Mr. You're going to die? You know, that's you know, pretty, pretty simple. It's not. Actually, 16% of Mr.'s actually survived. But if you had to give a, class, a, a categorical prediction, you'd predict they're going to die. I'm going to actually focus on probability. So I'd just say, well, high risk of 16% um, survival there. The other thing is third class. Um, you know, are you third class? Um, well, the, the, the next question that it, the algorithm they, um, picked out was, are you from a large family? If you're from a large family in third class, you really um, mm, don't stand a chance. Mm. But the smaller families, people, they, they actually quite a few survive rate among third class passengers who were not misters. So women and children from smaller families um, did, actually did quite well even in third class. But the best thing, if you weren't third class, then you're getting a very good chance and weren't mister. Very good chance of survival. Unless there is this category called rare title. There are all sorts of bonkers things, jukes, and you know, all, well, no, no, this would be, um, uh, and those did badly. But largely because those would be mainly men who weren't picked out as the mister. So that was another thing. So that, out of all the algorithms, and there's loads that do almost the same, but it's a very simple one to explain. And um, but basically, I'm interested in, in prediction, but uh, I, I, I'm actually doing an archive on forum prediction in a moment, which I really criticize this idea of, of saying what prediction is not saying what's going to happen. It's giving odds for what's going to happen, which I argue very strongly in this program. And so what I'm interested in is the probabilities provided by those algorithms. And then you score those by what's known as the Breyer score, which is known as the mean squared error. You know, basically, if you give a probability of, 70, of 0.7 to someone surviving and they do survive... You're not right, you're 0.3 out, and what you should be penalized is the square of that 0.3. 0.3 squared you must be penalized. Not 0.3, you get penalized by 0.3. If you said 70% chances of surviving and they die, you're penalized by 0.7 squared. You're a 0.7 out, 0.7 squared. So you use the square of the, of the mistake that you made. And that's the correct way to do it. Uh, it's been done in weather, that's how weather forecasters are assessed. Briar score is incredibly important. And when you look at the Briar score, among all these different algorithms that I tried out, that little classification tree works. You know, it works pretty well. The others are fairly close. Um, I won't go into it now, but in the book I talk about the fact that you can actually check whether these are, you know, given the random variation, actually you conclude these are better, that these are actually truly worse than this. Um, but, um, oh, it's warm. So, so that's what you can do. And I, still, there's no real uh, 
statistical theory there. You're just building a formula and checking how well it predicts. Okay, okay, so back to the question. Let's go around the cycle. Who was the luckiest person on the Titanic? Well, what I did was just look at the survivors and look who got, across all the algorithms, the lowest predicted chance of surviving. And those are the ones that the algorithm, all the algorithms thought they were going to die, and then they survived. Miraculous. There he is. <laughs> Carl Dahl, 45-year-old um, Norwegian-Australian joiner. Big man, strong man. And um, he was, one algorithm said it was impossible that he would survive. Because <laughs> he had everything. He was a man on his own, traveling in third class. He bought the cheapest ticket. Everything went against him, and he survived. Now, it turned out, when you look on the database, the Titanic database, he turned out he dived into the freezing water. So he should have died. I mean, almost no one survived who dived into the water. But he got onto a lifeboat, even though they tried to push him out. <laughs> I, think, I think that's him trying to get on. So he's strong. I think he fought his way onto the lifeboat. So maybe I should say he was lucky. Most thuggish survivor. Maybe. <laughs> so he carried on. There's pictures of him. That's the picture, actually, picture with his wife. But he got married and lived a long time. As opposed to William Somerton, who died, leaving his wife with only five quid in his will. Well, not in his will. He didn't have made a will, but that's all she was left with. So um, we, can, we can find these curious little historical facts out of, um, out of this analytics. Okay, so... Stats methods, though, aren't always used well. And, you know, although I try to make um, the book about what people do correctly, it's not a book about how bad stats are. There's one chapter on how to do stats badly. And this is new material that I haven't talked about before because it's related to... Um, have anyone who's heard about this debate going on about whether you should abandon statistical significance? People heard about that? Well, not many, a few. Anyway, the rest of you are about to hear about it. So the point about it, this whole idea of p-values and statistical significance, stuff like that, is a contested area, an increasingly contested. And I deal with it in quite some detail because it's a big current area of debate about how do we um, decide, for example, whether a treatment is effective or not. So here's an example. This is from last, last month, a paper. For, I mean, the septic shock is a terrible condition with a very high mortality rate. So this was a big randomized trial um, in South America of a new, uh, you know, a, a new strategy for preventing it. And this is the two treatments that they gave. This is the standard one. This is the new one with peripheral perfusion. This is the cumulative mortality rate over the first 28 days. And what this shows is that this new technique had um, 8 to 9% uh, fewer deaths you know, about, you know, one-fifth reduction in mortality, um, yeah, at least. And uh, they started, it was a randomized study, 212 people in each arm. They followed them up for a month, count the bodies. Uh, it was 120 versus 138 had died. Okay, so that looks pretty, you know, you think, well, that looks good. That looks good new treatment. So, but you do the calculations on it, and you work out that the hazard ratio, if you do a Cox analysis, we won't go into the details, 25% reduction in mortality rate is the, is the estimate. The confidence interval goes from 0.55 to 1.02. So the confidence interval that you'd put on the benefit just includes the point at which there's no difference. And they calculate this p-value of 0.06. So that was their p-value. Okay, what's the p-value? The mysteries of the p-value. Oh, my God. And we've all learned this, haven't we? The p-value is a measure of the conflict between the data and some null hypothesis, usually that there's no effect, that no, treatment doesn't work. And uh, I shouldn't apologize for doing it. This is you know, the absolute bread and butter of statistics. P-values, every scientific paper with a p-value in, in every area is just 
used all the time, zillions of times a day. People calculate these things. Is the probability of getting such an extreme result were the null hypothesis actually true? It's quite a complex thing. The main thing, and, and why I dwell with it, dwell in, uh, on the book on, on this quite a lot, is not the probability that the null hypothesis is true. So that's not, you know, that p equals 0.06 is not the probability um, that, the tr that the drug has, you know, um, has an um, has. Uh, were the null hypothesis, probably getting a bit of a, yeah, it's not the probability that, that there's not a 6% chance that there's no effect. You know, that's not what it means. Um, there's a traditional threshold of 5%, p equals 0.05, to declare what's called statistical significance. And this is, you know, taught, I've taught that, everyone teaches it. Um, but the other thing is that just because something is not significant, it doesn't mean no effect. And, and this is part of the stats education. God, we hammer this through all the time doesn't mean no effect. And if there's many tests you might, or a crucial decision, you might want to use a more stringent threshold. So that's what we teach. And nobody understands it, but never mind. We keep on teaching. So what about this study? You know, and, and so that, this idea that actually for more really important areas or where we're looking at a lot of tests, we might be more stringent, illustrated by the Higgs boson. And uh, the p-value they demanded there was one in three million, one in three and a half million. Um, they actually got, BBC were one of the few people who actually reported it correctly. They said there's a one in three and a half million chance that the signal they see would appear if there were no Higgs particle. It's not the chance there's no Higgs particle. But never mind. That's what most people said. Okay, so they got it right, BBC got it right. So that's really the, the you know, theoretical physicists don't want to make a fools themselves by claiming there's a particle and then suddenly it disappears. They've done it before. So they, they're really conscious of having a stringent effect. Okay, so what did the Andromeda thing find? They found this two-sided p-value of 0.06, the probability of observing such a big improvement where there no effect. It's actually 0.03, because that's... And for technical reasons, that's looking at whether this improvement gets worse or gets better, that 0.06 includes. So you could say there's 97% confidence of improvement. However, what's the author's conclusion? This is from the paper. They said this treatment did not reduce all-cause mortality. Shocking misuse of science. It doesn't, that's not what the data said. You saw the drop. And they're saying it didn't reduce it. Because that P was 0.06 rather than 0.05, they said it didn't reduce it. Complete nonsense. I always think, I could have gotten 0.05, given me the data, I'd have, I'd have screwed 0.05 out of that. Yeah. And, that, and of course, people do that. If you look in historical studies, there's lots of p-values that are just below 0.05. Yeah. Just get, get over that border. Yeah. So this is outrageous misuse of, of statistical significance, um, which could lead to deaths of people. And this led... Oh, oh no, and these were the headlines. Um, Fails to cut mortality. Does not lower mortality. You know, there's this fraction to go over this arbitrary threshold. This is nonsense, absolute nonsense, bad science. Um, and so this has led, this last week, to a paper in Nature saying all this statistical significant stuff, dividing things into significant or not, maybe we should just stop doing it. And this is quite revolutionary. Um, someone wrote a paper, 800 signatories, including myself, and the, president, and the present president of the Royal Statistical Society, but both signed it. It's not against p-values, it's just about splitting them into significant or not significant. So this is, um, you know, those of you who don't, don't know and don't care will think, whoa, this is not exactly going to push Brexit off the front page. <laughs> but 
to us in the trade, this is quite crucial. And because everyone has been taught this stuff, every student. I, I talked about this last week, in a, you know, and this school kid came up to me and said, we're learning this. <laughs> and you're saying we shouldn't be doing it. So, you know, it's a, it is a current issue, and I sort of lay into all that stuff there. Okay. So, um, you know, when might it be reasonable to split into significant and not significant? When a decision has to be made. You know, in drug regulations, for example, they demand two independent clinical trials, both with P less than 0.05. And that seems to be they're a gatekeeper function. They've got to have a rule that everyone knows, the drug companies know, and that's what they do. Two trials, 0.05. And when you're monitoring performance, you might want to know when to intervene. Well, you've got to make a decision when to intervene. So the areas, either what I'd like to know is to apply this idea, when could Harold Shipman have been caught earlier? And that's what we got asked. So, okay, let's look at this, how to approach this problem. What data have we got? We've got the data on when his patients died. We've also got data, which had to be collected, on when the patients of all the other GPs in the area died. How many of those died each year? And, and in relationship to the size of their practice, well, what was the age-sex breakdown of the practice? Did they have lots of old people? You'd expect more deaths, and so on. So it's quite a complicated... You've got to collect all that data and do quite a complex calculation, but, you know, fairly you know, uh, uh, common sense, to work out how many deaths he would have been expected to have were he an average GP. And this wouldn't be a whole number. You might say, well, each year we'd expect him to have about 2.7 deaths because he's got a whole lot of old people, and on average that's the mortality rate among these old people in this area from other GPs. And so we can estimate how many, how, how many patients Harold Shipman would expect to get. And that's a very common thing in stats, to work out what would we expect to have were he an ordinary GP. So this is the null hypothesis that he's an ordinary GP. And then we can subtract this expected number from the actual observed to get how many extra deaths did he have each year. And we can add them up over time. And we get this. So from 1977, just for women, by about 1983, about six years later, you get about 20 extra more deaths than you'd expect. And then it started going up, about 40, 60. By the time he got caught, he had 160 more deaths among women than you'd have expected by chance alone. And among men, it was less, but still pretty high. But, you know, so about, you know, this is about 200 extra. Amazing, you add these up, and you get about 210, which is almost exactly the same number as the inquiry concluded that he'd killed based on all the individual stories and all the individual data and digging people up and things like that. This doesn't know anything about that. doesn't know he's a criminal. It doesn't know anything. It's purely a statistical calculation, and yet it gets almost exactly right how many people he did actually kill. Extraordinary bit of stats here. Again, forensic stats, this is what it says. So, um, yeah, as I said, it's almost exactly what the Shipman inquiry concluded. We get it there. So, when should they have blown the whistle? If someone was, nobody was looking at this, by the way. Nobody was looking at this data. Nobody was, we concluded nobody was to blame. Nobody was collecting this, looking at when could it, when would the whistle have been blown? And it turns out this is quite a subtle issue for a number of reasons. If you keep on testing and testing and testing this, you know, there's a nice mathematical results that shows that even if you were completely innocent, in the end, you're going to find a significant, quotes, um, excess mortality. If you keep on testing enough, you'll always find something. I mean, so you've got to be really careful about keeping on testing. The other thing is there's 20, 26,000 GPs in the country. So 
the chance of one of them crossing some, you know, being, the whistle being blown on one of them is very high unless you're very stringent because there's so many GPs. And we don't, we, if we were setting up a monitoring system, we have to allow for the fact that we're looking at all of these people. So it's a very subtle issue. So there's two th- the, 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 what, we, what we can use is some nice statistical theory. It was actually developed in the Second World War in parallel both by um, George, a guy called George Barnard in the UK and, and by Abraham Walt in the US on, on a simple statistical method that can be used to do, develop this sort of monitoring called the sequential probability ratio test. But we, we have to think, if we're going to do any sort of statistical thing, there's two sorts of mistakes we can make. The first one is we could falsely accuse an innocent person, and that's known as a type 1 error. The other thing we could do is miss someone with a true increased risk. We could, we could let him get away with it, or we could falsely accuse them. These are both terrible things. Don't know which is worse. Which one? We, typically, um, this one is the one we, we want to control more. We consider that a false accusation uh, might be worse, finding someone guilty who isn't guilty. Someone might want to do this worse. So, um, typically, when you're designing then a monitoring procedure, you want to keep the probability of a type 1 error low, and that's known as alpha, and you want to collect lots of data to make the type 2 errors rare as well. So you want to collect lots of data, but you want to have a very stringent criteria. You want to be quite rigorous before you point the finger. And it turns out then that you can design these statistics, quite nice statistics, where the, your thresholds are just straight lines. They're just straight lines. And you can plot these in advance. And then you plot your data, and when the data goes over the threshold, you blow the whistle. And then you're pretty confident that there's something there, because you've set these, this top threshold, alpha equals beta equals 1 in 100,000. That means 1 in 100,000 chance of making either sort of mistake either a false accusation or missing someone. So you're going to wait quite a long time because you're being very stringent and allowing for the fact there's 20,000 GPs in the country and you'd have got him in 1985 after he killed about 40 people instead of 215. And saved about 170 lives had there been any system in place there designed fairly properly. But nobody did it, nobody looked. Afterwards people see, looked at what this sort of system would have done and, um, and it would, what it would have done is, is uh, found uh, five doctors with higher mortality rates than Shipman in Eastbourne. Um, I don't know if you know Eastbourne. You know, high mortality rate in Eastbourne. <laughs> and a very caring GP was, was, was helping his pa- patients die at home and signing their death certificates. So he was a fantastic doctor, looking really committed to the deaths of older people. This would have spotted him as being deeply dangerous, <laughs> as having a high excess mortality, more than you'd expect. So you've got to be really careful in putting these things into practice. But that's you know, an example of where some really, you know, this statistical theory was developed in production lines for munitions being applied in a very different area. Okay, so um, just coming, you know, oh, how am I getting on? Oh, I can't, what's the time? Oh, yeah, not, not too bad. I'll come, I'll come to the end quite soon. Probability in Bayes, uh, I, I'm very interested in the applications of probability in statistics in the law. Um, there's a whole area called, now called forensic statistics, which is developing hugely. It's amazing. Um, I, I'm doing a primer with a Supreme Court judge that will go out to every judge in the country on per- forensic statistics. Okay, technical stuff. Very quickly, Bayes' theorem. And I'm not going to prove it, I'm just going to state it. Bayes' theorem says that um, the initial... Oh, oh no, uh, hang on. Yeah, that's it. The initial odds for a hypothesis times the likelihood ratio is the final odds for a hypothesis. Bayes' theorem, the rule in probability, says how you should change your beliefs 
in the light of new evidence. So it's a theory of learning. It's, it's the theory of learning. It's the correct, mathematically correct theory of learning. And what you have to do is, if you don't know whether a hypothesis is true or not, like whether someone's guilty or not, you, you state some initial odds based on the, the, your current evidence, and then you've got some new evidence coming in, and this is called the like, that gives you the likelihood ratio, and that gives you the final odds. Very simple. Okay, so let's see in a case in, you know, a fictitious case. You've got a thousand possible perpetrators of a crime, plus one suspect who's been, by a rather unreliable witness, has been, has been fingered. Um, so you've got a thousand and one people. The initial, and you say, well, initially, you know, no reason to think he's different from anybody else, particularly although we've got this slightly suspicious, um, like we're given the benefit of the doubt, one in a thousand chance he's guilty. He's just a random person. Not one in a thousand, one in a thousand and one, that's odd of one, odds of one to a thousand. The likelihood ratio is the probability of the evidence that you measure, oh, and then you take some DNA test on it. The likelihood ratio is the probability of getting the DNA match, and you get a match, given that he's guilty, divided by the probability of getting a match, given it was just somebody else. And this is known as the random um, match probability. One, the, the one on the bottom is the random match probability. You assume this is one, the probability of getting a match given he's guilty. Yeah, that's one. This is, the, this is the random match probability. And typically you'll get values in the millions from DNA. It's even su su suggested now that if you get a value of a billion, that's the only evidence you need. You don't need any supporting evidence. That is enough to convict. But let's say it's a million, which is still quite high. So what's the probability or the odds that the guy did it. You just multiply these together. I don't know what the I is doing, that should be one. Um, so, oh, actually, that shouldn't be, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the, um, that's wrong. That's a wrong formula, isn't it? Spot the error, students. No, that is not the right formula, is it? I, I, <laughs> now, if you replace that by an equals and that by a times, you get the right answer. Yeah, spot the deliberate mistake. What I meant to say is that this is the initial odds times the likelihood ratio gives you a thousand to one that he did it. A thousand to one that he did it. So simple maths. Now, that is how um, evidence is brought into court now, except you're not allowed to do the multiplication in court. You can use likelihood ratios. It's been, the business based theorem has been banned from British courts after Peter Donnelly tried to do it. And you're not allowed to use the prior odds or the final odds. You're not to talk about the probability of guilt in court. So we can now use likelihood ratios. Um, let's look at how these things are used in forensic science. Richard III. Okay, who thinks that the skeleton they dug up wasn't really Richard III? I suggested this once to some of the researchers. They got so angry. Goodness <laughs> me. They really got angry. And quite with reason, as I'll point out. Okay, so the story is that on uh, 25th of December, August 2012, um, they brought along a digger in a car park in Leicester, started digging a hole, and within a couple of hours, they'd found a skeleton. Just dug the first skeleton. They dug this small hole. There was a skeleton. There he was. And they said, that's Richard III. <laughs> Sounds pretty implausible to me. First day, they dug a hole, there he is. Right, good, let's bury him in Leicester Cathedral. No. Now, it went a bit further than that because, you know, they, amazing a picture. And you can, I think you can even see the curvature of the spine in that picture. So they did all these tests on him. This was later claimed to Richard III. Can we believe this? Um, and there's a lovely paper on this 
um, in nature communications. And it's all based, their argument that it's Richard III and why he's buried in Leicester Cathedral, is all based on this idea of a likelihood ratio. It's all based on taking individual items of evidence and working out the probability of evidence if the skeleton were Richard III, uh, you can think of him as being guilty, divided by the probability of evidence if it was somebody else. Now that means this is usually, you know, might be one, if we assume that he really was, you know, had a, a curvature of the spine, and if we assume the stories about him were true, this requires research into how many people in 1485 had scoliosis. And they, they quote all that, so they do all this worse research, you know, how many people... So, and then they quote it, then the interesting thing is that within courts now, there is a, a standard language for reporting forensic science findings, likelihood ratio. So if you get a likelihood ratio of 1,000 to 10,000, you can say it's strong support for a hypothesis, such as the guilt of the suspect. You can't say, give a probability he's guilty, but you can say it strongly supports. So this is a, a recognized scale that's used. Okay, what did they find? Hey, it's amazing. So radiocarbon dating only gave a likelihood ratio of two. So they found what the skeleton was from then, but it's very vague, and everybody in that graveyard was, was, was from that period. So that's not very distinctive evidence, still very weak evidence indeed from radiocarbon dating, because they knew in advance anyone they found would be from that period. Age and sex of the skeleton, pretty weak support, you know, is a male about the right age, but then the really powerful stuff was this curvature of the spine. But even that only counts as moderately strong, like a ratio of 200, 200 times more likely that this curvature of the spine would be there if it was Richard III than if it wasn't. And a lot of effort to go into that. Post-war, the, the, the body had been uh, mutilated after it was dead, which you think would be pretty rare. I don't know quite how they estimated the chance of that happening if it wasn't Richard III, but never mind. So they got, but they, they, of course, it's the DNA that really, gave, that really did it. Um, this is through um, the female line. He didn't have any children, but um, they can look at relations, the known descendants. They took the DNA of known descendants of relations and found out, they worked out that they thought, I mean, it's not as strong as taking DNA from a suspect, so the likelihood ratio is only 478, they worked, but not bad at all. The, um, the evidence against it was the um, male um, uh, DNA, um, the Y chromosome, um, didn't match. But didn't know what they expected. But that actually is not surprising because all you need is breaks in the family line, the paternity. You know, and then every you know, um, historical series, there's going to be inevitably mistaken paternity somewhere coming in there. But you multi they multiplied these up together to give a, a support of 6.5 million, and they claimed at least... 99.9994% chance that this was Richard III, which got him buried in the cathedral. So they, they did this mathematical calculation to do that. What's interesting is this was a court case. They wouldn't have been allowed to multiply these up. It's, it's said, it's, it's, the judges have ruled that it's the job of the jury to combine these different items of evidence together. You can't, not allowed to multiply these things up in court. So this is a really you know, um, quite a contested area, but a, a big area for the application of statistical probability methods. Okay, so just to finish off, I, I, some of you may have seen these jokes before, but it has been slightly revived with some current experience. I just want to finish off then to describe about when statistics can go wrong. I love statistics, but, you know, and I try to communicate them, but actually sometimes I make a mistake. Something happens. So this was a, my previous book, 
available from all good, dirty booksellers. No, it's, um, it's very, it's not dirty. It's extreme. The le- you couldn't think of anything less titillating in your life um, than a, a book on statistics of sexual behavior. And I thought it was quite good, but never mind. It took a long time to, um, to write and choose the cover. That was going to be the cover. That was, a, that was a proposal by the designer. And literally, you know, this is true. W.H. Smith said, no, 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 no. We're not going to have that book on our shelves. So, so that's the cover they dare not show. I, think, I, thought, I thought it was great. I, I would have gone for it. No, no, can't have that cover. Okay. So um, the, the story that, I, as you'll see, keeps cropping up and I keep on coming back to me is the story about how often do people have sex. And um, the, 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 why this is a story is that the rates are declining. And this isn't just from these surveys, but in the U.S. and other surveys, there is decline in the frequency of sex among the younger population. And that, um, this is still opposite sex um, couples. So um, this is younger, well, for me, seems very younger people, 16 to 44-year-olds. The first survey in 1990, the median, this is the interquarter I arranged, that's the bottom quarter, top quarter, median, five times a month. Uh, by the time it's 2000, it's four times a month, 2010, three times a month. Well, I think we can all do the extrapolation there, and uh, we wonder what's going to happen to the, uh, to the future nation. <laughs> so, so that's, and, and everyone asks why is that's the case, and I think it's a statistician, it's not, not my job to say why, but even the researchers who, who uncovered this information did say that they thought they got quoted like all this sort of story all the time. But I think it was to do with the you know, massive connectivity we have all the time, compared with when you know, old people you know, like me were young, when there's two, you know, I mean, two channels on TV and it stopped at half past ten, no internet, no nothing, there was nothing to do. So, and, so, but now, honestly, you know, there's all this, you know, everyone's connected, you're checking your emails, there's, there's Netflix, there's box sets. So I said, you know, when I was talking about this at Hay, I said, oh, I think I blame the box sets. Oh, I can't come to bed on binge-watching Game of Thrones or something like that. So anyway, this one, yeah, I got about the same laugh as this, but never mind. But, but no, when I said all this in the talk, the journalist was in the audience writing it all down. And, uh, and the next day, this was the headline in the Daily Telegraph. <laughs> having that second game for Cambridge professor. And I thought, no, that's the impact. There were some jokes there. There were some jokes. They didn't get very big laughs like this time, but actually they were jokes. But um, there she was. Oh, oh, sorry, this has got shifted. Sorry. You know, the trend in declining sex rates, Professor Spiegel said it was very worrying. And if, if this carried on, they wouldn't be having any sex at all by 2030. And so, well, no, that actually was a joke. I didn't mean that seriously. But I, I, was, I was cross. And I thought, oh, this is tomorrow's chip wrapper. Who cares about these stupid stories? What I didn't realize is how the modern media works. So once somebody's written a story saying, sex, Cambridge professor, Game of Thrones, everyone can just copy it. They don't have to check. Well, no, no, no. So there was Newsweek with uh, his Game of Thrones ruining our sex life. Always with a half-naked woman, of course, on, on it as well. And couples will stop having sex by 2006. And this is my favorite. This is my Sex will be obviously by 2000 because of Netflix. But it's one lone scientist. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 40 years building up a reputation <laughs> down there like that. And it goes on in German and another half naked woman, of course, Italian, you know, what Professor Spiegelholder says. And this was a few years ago, and it hasn't stopped. Yesterday, I looked on Twitter. No, no, this was a story from yesterday, French. In 2030, there's going to be no more love. 
from this researcher Brito, you know, Br- you know, Davis Pialta. And then um, in Twitter, here he is in Spanish, you know, me saying there's not going to be any sex by 2000. So this was yesterday. This is my favorite, oh my in French. And it's just by this, you know, saying that, um, you know, enjoy it while there's still time, he said. I don't believe I actually said that, to be honest. But who am I to complain? So this was just yesterday. And oh, God, I get emailed all the time. It won't go, the story just won't die. It's one of these sort of zombie statistics. But my faith in, in journalism was slightly restored by one, one journalist. Um, this guy writing in, in Forbes magazine, who said, is Game of Thrones killing your sex life? And he is a proper stat- statistical data journalist. So he drew the graph, the 543. And of course, made the, made the usual comment you know, about the idiotic extrapolation. But he had the genius to realize that if you can extrapolate forwards, you can extrapolate backwards. And estimate that in the, in the year zero, people were having sex 200 times a month. (laughs) And that's what the statistics prove, which just goes to show they can prove anything. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much for your lecture. What a way to end. Um, So we now have some time for questions. Um, Can I just ask if you would like to ask a question that you wait for one of our stewards to get to you with uh, the roving microphone? And if you could also just tell us your name and your affiliation. So, who would like to start? Okay. Thank you. Oh, I think this this one is first. Hello. Uh, Thanks for the talk. It was fantastic, Professor. Um, My name's Kaylee, and for all of my sins, I am in public relations. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So the communication element of this really, really interests me. I guess guess my question comes down to maths was never my strong suit, and I followed along as best I could, but for the people in communications, the journalists who took your story or that story and ran with it, how do we do better? How do we communicate more accurately to the masses when... A lot of people maybe don't understand statistics to, obviously, the extent that you do. Yeah, it's terribly important. I do some stuff in the book about that, and we work quite a lot with trying to improve the way in which numbers are reported. I mean, I I I give whole lectures on this stuff, but there are some pretty simple tricks that um, suit the public communication of risk, for example. And the first one is that when anyone reports an increased risk, Oh, this doubles your risk of something, or 20%. This is a terrible way to tell a story. Unfortunately, that's what comes out of a lot of scientific studies. So if someone does say that eating bacon sandwiches increases your risk of bowel cancer by, by 20%, you'll say, well, 20% of what? You know, is this really important? And so the crucial thing is to, um, which has been shown in a lot of research, and in, in thing, is to, if you, can we convert it to being, what does it mean for 100 people like you? You know, it's a, a metaphor that took for converting risk and probability and chance, which is very nice because you can illustrate it, looking at 100 people like you, um, you know, and it, 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 it tell, puts it into a story, not of you. You can't say what's going to happen to you, but it can at least say what would expect to happen among a group of people like you. And, you know, so, for example, you know, the, what's in the book is to say, well, actually, according to that latest data, you'd have to have 100 people eating a greasy bacon sandwich every single day of their lives and out of that, you get one extra case of bowel cancer. You know, that's, every, that's, that's the sort of... And it puts it in perspective. 
Because, I mean, well, maybe that might, you know, different people can respond. They might say, oh, I'm not going to never going to touch bacon again. Others might say, pass the brown sauce. So it's, you know, it, but you're putting it in a framework which allows people to at least visualize it and look at the magnitudes. Because otherwise, so much of the way that numbers are communicated, as I said, it's tr- to try to persuade rather than inform, and always deliberately obscuring their meaning. So I think there are tricks, um, and I'm very happy to talk more about it. And there's also good organizations like the Science Media Center, you know, working on improving that, um, improving press releases. I give a whole stuff about press releases, which, as I showed, have been terrible in the past, but they actually are improving. Um, press offices are catching on the fact that journalists can take statements of uncertainty. They don't have to be... Journalists say, don't write the story for me, you know, tell me what the actual evidence is. Yeah. I think there was a question just here. Uh, I've been waiting patiently with the, uh, the man with the, the, the green coat here. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Professor. Um, uh, the name's Ewan Grant. I'm um, a former law enforcement intelligence analyst covering the ex-Soviet states, and certainly the data cycle you showed uh, um, is is like the intelligence cycle yeah, that yeah. was drilled into us. And for the same reasons, when it's done well, mm. the same procedures, and when it's not done well, the same things are mm. missed out. I, um, I did teach in that, the John F. Kennedy case, and certainly I would have welcomed your assistance because I've been fighting a, le- a losing battle over the years against the conspiracy yeah, theory yeah, nutcases. Yeah, yeah. But my question is... With um, greater data collection and data um, extraction through digitalization, how is, are there risks or opportunities in the old story of the dog that did not bark? Ah. In other words, the absence of a yeah. positive. Yeah. Thank you. I, I, I think the dog that didn't bark is, uh, you know, it's a Sherlock Holmes story, the, the um, Silver Blaze, I think. It's, it's incredibly important. It's, it's one of the things it's in the book, you know, as the most, the most difficult advice to give of all is when you hear about a story, to ask, what am I not being told? It's terribly difficult to do because there's nothing, you know, you can read a scientific paper, it looks completely plausible, but if you're not being told that, you know, this relationship between, uh, like um, one I saw, um, you know, eating yogurt when you're pregnant and your child getting asthma, and there was a study on that, and what we weren't being told, and I had to dig it out by detective work, was that they'd looked at everything the parents, you know, mother dating during, during pregnancy, they looked at every childhood condition and found this association between those two and then reported that one. Now, that's very difficult to dig, realize this is complete nonsense unless you know the process by which the data was arrived at. In other words, what am I not being told? And that's very challenging to do and requires, you know, a bit of... Uh, uh, imagination and uh, determination to find that. Um, but that's the kind of thing that I think good journalists should be doing all the time, is trying to identify, you know, the, 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 the bigger context, yeah. Okay. I'll just take one question over here and then and you'll be next, thank you. Um, this the, um, the stripy top. Hmm. Hello, hello, hello. Can you hear me okay? Yep. Um, hi, thank you 
Dr. Uh, well, Professor Spiegelhalter for such, a, such an interesting talk. I'm Cathy Riley. I'm um, an academic at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Oh, yeah. So there we teach a lot of people statistics who don't typically have a statistics background. And we're constantly faced with a challenge of this dogma of, oh, statistics isn't my subject. I was never good at maths. And it's a real problem. And it, it, they are good at maths. It's just that they don't have the confidence yeah. to be... Yeah. Um, statistically literate yeah. and have less of an interest to engage with things unless they come across an interesting application and an interesting yeah. way to solve a problem. Yeah. Do you have any solutions uh, to no, that? Yeah, no, it's a, it is a standard. I mean, you know, that's why I sort of do this joke about, you know, who, who like their statistics course is that, you know, it's generally not a popular sort I, 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 I couldn't stand it when I learned it. I wanted to give it up. I really didn't enjoy it at all. I just didn't see the point taught, being taught this mathematical stuff. You know, it just wasn't didn't have any problem to drive it along. So, I mean, I suppose that's why I do, I have structured it in the way I, I have said, in order to get the that this is a problem-solving statistics is not a subject in itself. You know, there's got almost no, in, I don't think there's a huge intrinsic interest in it. There is in probability, but statistics is, only exists in order to solve problems for people. You know, it's, there's an enabling technology, I've heard it called. And so and that's why I think it has to be driven from that perspective of real-world problems. Then you can get in all sorts of methods and stuff like that. But if it's just driven by, you know, a theoretical structure... I think it's dry and actually pretty tedious, and why should anyone see there's a point in it? Because it doesn't even have the beauty of maths. You're not proving you know, nice, elegant stuff. So, so it ends up nobody likes it. And I think it's a real shame, because I think it's tremendously important. And um, you know, we, need, we need people with statistical literacy. They don't have to be mathematically, great mathematically skilled, but they need to have some statistical literacy. There was one question for you. Here. Really more about communications than uh, statistics, but um, what would your advice be about commun uh, communicating safety to a media that's really interested in communicating risk? And I ask that as uh, somebody from Public Health England. Mm. I'm the guy who said e-cigarettes were 95% less harmful. So, 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 I'm yeah. the guy who said e-cigarettes were 95% less harmful. Oh, yes. Oh, great. Good. <laughs> quite, quite right, too. Absolutely. But, that, but that's a number, of course, that was constructed on the basis of expert opinion and has been you know, generally, you know, um, I think, a very reasonable number you, you, but in, by being clear about its basis. Um, but it's been, it has been criticized quite a lot. By people. So, that, I mean, there's a whole lot of propaganda and e-cigs is a really, um, a really tricky area. Um, I, I, I think, you know, the risk world is, is I've worked in it, it's a very special one because there is, like in e-cigarettes, there are so many agendas and that there's a you know, huge wish for many people to frighten other people and make them anxious. You know, I, don't, I could give a talk, the killer roast potato story, you know, the dangers of having one drink a day and all that sort of stuff is being, you know, propagated, I think, you know, with a misplaced urge to improve the public health of the nation but of things that are actually very weak evidence that are of any harm at all. And they're propagated by making people anxious. Oh, this may give you cancer. This may, yeah, the current thing, you know, having wondering a day will give you cancer. I think there's actually, you know, people should really ask themselves whether it's a moral thing to do, to deliberately try to provoke anxiety in people when there's no good evidence actually that there is reason to be anxious. I think it's a, a very suspicious thing to do. I, I again... 
Hans Rosling is the arch you know, statistical communicator. In his book, Factfulness, he's got this lovely phrase that we be, should be concerned about what is dangerous and not what sounds frightening. And people who just try to frighten us, you know, really, we, shouldn't, we should be, shouldn't be listening unless they can really show this is dangerous in comparison with other risks we face and we're concerned about. Um, so I, I, I think it's a... It actually, I think, feel it's an ethical issue in terms of, um, you know, what one should say to people to try to manipulate their emotions and their behaviour. Are there any questions? I'll come up. Any questions from this side of the room? Yes, the... Um... Hi, uh, I'm sorry, I just have a very um, practical question about one of the slides that you showed uh, about Chipman and yep. the alpha and beta yep. error. And I understand how by raising that bar uh, or the threshold, yep. um, you would minimize the alpha error. But I don't understand how then you minimize the beta error? Yeah, that's a, that's a, very, it's a very good point. It's not so much you minimize beta, it's just that if you plug the formulas for those lines, which were developed back in the Second World War, involve both alpha and beta. And so you can't just specify them on the basis of, of, of alpha. You need to know also if somebody really were um, harming, and, and it, they're set for um, an alternative hypothesis that's got double the risk, no, that they also you would detect them fairly quickly, and that can affect where the line is. So you both want to um, have the line high so that you don't um, uh, make false positive claims, but you want to have it low so you find people quickly. So there's this tension going on, and that where that line is kind of balances those two tensions. So that's why they're both important. Oh, that was just an arbitrary choice. It was setting them both to 100,000. They don't have to be. You can have them different. It was purely an arbitrary choice that I wanted to be sure. I, 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 yeah, completely arbitrary. If you change beta, they'll go up and down. They'll go better. There's log 1 minus alpha over beta, I think, is the formula. Question but nice. Here. Thanks for asking that. A second row here. Oh, Henry, yeah. Just can you wait for the now, now, Henry, are you going to... <laughs> Was I going to accept a question from you? I'm, I'm really not Sta sure. Statins. Yeah, that's all so, in the book. Pages of statins. Word, but Could you I, just tell us your name? Henry, Henry Wynn, the stats department. You. So, <laughs> do we take statins, persuade you to take statins because everybody who takes statins will improve a little bit, or because we're a member of a population who will benefit, and the drug companies don't want to tell you tell us what the population okay. is, I, because they will sell us, they keep on selling us statins. Okay, there's a footnote in the book saying why I take statins at the moment. And um, so basically, um, you know, I put myself through a risk calculator, Q-Risk 2, a couple of years ago, and it came out with a 16% chance of a, a um, heart attack or stroke over the next 10 years, assuming I don't die of something else, which is quite high. And it's, it's high enough, it's, it used to be, and it's, uh, it's um, at a level at which... Um, GPs are recommended to offer statins to the patient. Um, now, and when I took the statins, uh, my LDL went down by 2 millimoles per litre and uh, put it into the calculator and it worked out that my risk had gone down to 9% chance of a heart attack or stroke. And uh, I'm not getting side effects. If I did, I wouldn't take them or I'd change brand. And so I think that's reasonable. Now, they may not do me any good at all. 
I've no idea whether they'll do me any good at all. If I have a heart attack, I won't know whether I would have had it anyway. If I don't have a heart attack, I won't know whether they, they help me. So I can never say whether I have personally benefited from it. All I can say is that out of 100 people like me taking this, instead of 16, there'll be nine at the end of 10 years having this heart attack. And for me, I don't know which one of these I'm going to be, whether I'm going to be there at all. It's enough for me to do. So it means you, you are applying population measures to an individual and saying that, yeah, if all these people do it, they will benefit on average, and that's fine. Now, in other circumstances, I don't like that population thing because, you know, we know that, um, for example, drinking alcohol, if everyone drank a, lot, a bit less, even the people who don't drink very much at all, you'd have a, huge, a big public health benefit. And so um, public health um, campaigns, known as, you know, the Rose idea should be, should be aimed at reducing everyone's bad behavior, not just picking on the high drinkers, the biggest thing. What it means, you need to tell people then to change their behavior when, when you can pretty well guarantee that it'll have almost no effect on them whatsoever. And there it's different, because that, then in those situations, I think it's quite reasonable for an individual to say, well, what you're recommending is beneficial for the population at all, but I'm not, it's not beneficial, I'm not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to choose not to do it. So it definitely depends on magnitude, I think, this business of how much you can apply these population things to yourself as an individual. It's, very, it's a very subtle issue, isn't it, really? I mean, it's very, it's very complex. And, and you can see in a lot of the language that this is not understood, I think, that this really is quite a, a tricky issue. Yeah. Are there any questions from upstairs? wouldn't want to leave you out. <laughs> Nothing. Okay, any other questions? Oh, right. we'll it's still going strong. Go. Well, a more question. and more. Can I just ask the lady at the very back there first? And then... Thanks. My name's Emma Veach. I'm an editor. Sorry, I can't, can't. Sorry, Emma Veach. I'm an editor. Can't hear. Um, Sorry, does that work? Hello? Um, could you maybe talk a bit more about what you said about Harold Shipman and kind of using the data to try to predict when, um, you know, it was possible to say that he may have been killing people. Is that really what would happen in reality or would you actually look at the mode of death and, and what were potentially the, the actual medical causes and the, the sort of process by which the, the individuals died rather than using the quantitative data to kind of yeah. things and, and how those ways of, of observing and collecting data actually lead us to make decisions in real life. Yeah, I mean, the point is that in the actual inquiry, and all the documents are still up on the on, um, National Archive. It's quite extraordinary. It's um, very moving. And for every one of those victims, there's a complete story of pages of, of what happened to them and, uh, and so on. So the, that's the point, is that the data does not... People in the statisticians who deal with data know the inadequacy of data. It can't tell you the answers to things. You always need extra information. You need qualitative, you know, you need knowledge and judgment and experience and conversations with people and things like that. So that um, we know that any analysis of that data is only, is only, can only give a, you know, a rough view of uh, one aspect of what went on. And in fact, in the inquiry, because they actually followed through, they did 15, they exhumed 15 uh, victims, they found all these high levels of diamorphine. All the, all the other people have been cremated 
to no record of their um, of how they died. So actually, you know, for 200 of these victims, they they said they confirmed death, but they could never actually prove it completely. It was just based on you know the 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 medical evidence and the way he had changed the medical records, which is. The big giveaway. He didn't realize that when he changed the records, everything was time-stamped. He was, he was one of the first, he was an early adopter of, of computing. Um, but he didn't realize that actually when a, a real computer person got, got into his database, he could see how it had been meddled with. So that's one of the things that convicted him and was his, was his thing. So um, I think the, I'm not sure if I've answered this, this properly, but I think the, the statistics, it, 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 can, it can point, largely it asks questions. That's all it can do, except for the monitoring thing. But even that was completely theoretical, because that, that question of when could he have been caught was something that the um, victims' families were very interested in. And yet the judge concluded that, yeah, in theory, he could have been caught a lot earlier, but in practice, nobody was looking at that data. And so we can't blame anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, any other questions? Just, if we just can take somebody from this side of the room. I think there's some there. Hi, uh, Susanna Robinson, World Health Organization. And I guess I wanted to go back to the question around ethics because we're at the moment, we're in big data, we're in yep. data being sucked in from everywhere, but there's no quality assurance on it. And whose, this is such a policy question, whose responsibility oh. is it? So if you're a machine algorithm, you know, you're building something, you're using yep. the data that you've got, mm. and it's not good enough, it's got inbuilt bias, it's got mm. all the other problems, mm. whose responsibility is it in that scenario to say that's not good enough yeah. and you need to make it better? Okay. Well, I mean, this is obviously a matter of, you know, huge interest at the moment. Like somebody said recently that there's more people working on the ethics of AI than there are working in AI. So, you know, <laughs> with the setting up of institutions, the Centre for, you know, Data Ethics and Innovation, and the Ada Lovelace, and so, they're all, you know, this is an incredibly important thing. And in the book, you know, I deal with, I, I talk about this quite a lot. In particular, for example, the Compass algorithm that's being used in the U.S. For, to, to help judges um, you know, on sentencing and bail decisions is a proprietary algorithm that you, know, you can't see what it's doing and, you know, and, and it's been strongly accused of having of, of, of biases. I don't, I don't think this, statistically I don't think actually you can prove the bias there but what it certainly do, does is use information that's purely associative it's like you know, what, what your family history, who you mixed with as you were a kid and things like that and statistically yes that might mean be correlated with the fact that you might skip bail or something like that or might re-offend now, is it fair to use that in such circumstantial evidence for making the decisions rather than something that directly relates to your, your, your case, your specific case? You're using associational evidence. So um, it's, uh, I think it's, this is unbelievably important. And I think, that, again, that in the future, people will look back at this period as a wild west and in two ways. First of all, the, the fact that we're also prepared to give away our personal data to anybody to make money out of. And secondly, in the way that we've allowed, we allow algorithms to be making decisions without um, a proper, actually a regulatory basis. So I, I, I give a whole talks about this now, about trustworthiness of algorithms. And there's two aspects of trustworthiness. First of all, there's what the algorithm actually says. Can you believe it? For the Titanic algorithm, it says there's 16% you know, of these sort of men 
die, you know, don't you know, survive. Well, I want that to be 16%. You know, I want it to work like that. But the other thing that's really important is the trustworthiness of the claims made about the algorithm by the developers. And these basically can't be trusted because these are products. So people will make all sorts of claims about this medical algorithm, this, and, and nobody's testing them. Whereas if it was a drug or even a medical device, it would have to go through a regulatory system. It's extraordinary that you can bring out an algorithm to be used in that. And I, <laughs> we're doing it. I mean, uh, we, I, we produced a prostate cancer algorithm last week, and uh, we did the front end on, and it's out now being used for predicting results after can you know, for men with prostate cancer, how long are they going to live? And we haven't had to go through any regulatory process for that. Um, we can get a, a C mark for it, um, but you know, I, I'm not saying necessarily we should, because I think, of course, we've done it very well, and we got, it's Cambridge University, and it's on, a, on an NHS site, and so we have to produce some, um, some, some uh, validation that it is, it is you know, appropriate. So I think we have, we've had to produce some evidence, but I think we could have got, got away with not doing that, just shoved it up, and then people might start using it. So I think that these things have to be started. As people take these things more seriously, we're going to have to develop more of a regulatory regime, I think. Okay. I'm afraid I think that would have to have been our last question. Unfortunately, we have uh, run out of time. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, it's been a, a great pleasure to hear um, Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter give his, his very informative and uh, engaging talk. Um, thank you very much for taking the time to join us this no, evening. No. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.